that that's the final story for the military, that they say, no, this is who we are. This is who we're supposed to. We're supposed to protect the innocent. We're supposed to protect the vulnerable. Um, it's not about being tough guys. It's not about taking advantage of the fact that we're given lethal power by our society. It's not about a particular vision of, of masculinity. You're listening to War College, a weekly podcast that brings you the stories from behind the front lines. Here are your hosts. Hello, welcome to War College. I am your host, Matthew Galt. Happy Thanksgiving, and thanks for tuning in to this special podcast. Last week was a busy one for President Trump and the military. Secretary of the Navy Richard Spencer was fired, or did he quit? No, he was fired. Why? Uh, because of how he handled controversy surrounding Navy SEAL and accused war criminal Eddie Gallagher. That's, that's if he was actually fired, which he probably was. Here to help us untangle this mess is Pauline Curran. Corinne is the Stockdale Chair in Professional Military Ethics at the U.S. Naval War College and the author of The Warrior, Military Ethics, and Contemporary Warfare, Achilles Goes Asymmetrical. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. All right. So here at the top, I want to say that Corinne's views are her own, and they do not represent the views of the U.S. Naval War College or the Pentagon. Um, that said, uh, what what's what is going on? Uh, why... Are we down a secretary of the Navy? What happened, as far as you can tell? Um, well, I mean, that's an excellent question. What happened? Uh, as far as I can tell, um, and there's a lot of conflicting press reports, so uh, I think, uh, you know, only the people involved really know what happened. But the basic issue, I think, is that, um, you know, Gallagher and and his people had had asked President Trump to intervene in a in a military justice case, um, and so there's this question about it's not a legal question. President Trump, of course, has the right to pardon or uh, give legal remedies as part of his executive uh, executive powers, but the question this week I think became uh, a question of. Uh, the military profession, because, you know, uh, even though there were difficulties, procedural difficulties with Gallagher's case, um, the, the core question is whether or not the military profession can hold their own members accountable for failing to uphold both legal and moral standards that we expect of people in the military profession. Um, that's, as a profession, one of the definitions of a profession is that it is largely self-regulating and that the members of the profession are the ones who decide who is given entrance into the profession. And also they're the ones that decide when someone needs to leave the profession. And I think it's the second one uh, that is the issue with, um, uh, with Gallagher. Um, and so I think the military views this as we are trying to police our own uh, President Trump views this as his uh, as his prerogative, and I, uh, from the reports, my sense is he thinks he is uh, showing support to the military. Um, 
But I think he has a particular view of uh, the task of the military. He's been quoted in the last few days of that he's supporting our warfighters. And in the past, he has made references to our warfighters as, as killers and has said, said in his election uh, campaign that, you know, if he told uh, members of the military to do so, they would commit war crimes. So I think he has a very different view of responsibility and accountability when it comes to the military. So in terms of what the conflict is about, it is in part a, a conflict about the nature of the military profession, but it has also created a, uh, a civilian-military relations conflict because there's this question about can a, you know to what degree can can a civilian authority overrule uh, how the military functions as a profession, right? And what's the relationship we have civilian control of the military? And so there has been a lot of discussion this week especially with the either firing or resigning of Secretary Spencer um, about exactly what that relationship is. Um, And also sort of questions of obedience. Um, What does one do when the president is taking action that one has moral qualms with? So it's not a legal question. He has a legal right to do uh, what he's doing. uh, For many people, it's a moral question. That you know, people think, including myself, I argued this week that it that it was morally problematic. That was wrong. All right. Well, let's back up just a little bit and get a little bit more information about this specific case. Who is Eddie Gallagher, um, and what exactly was he accused of? Um, well, he was first of all the Gallagher case, which has been laid out in the press, um, you know, quite extensively. There's there's the there's the what he was accused of. He was accused of uh, by his own people, his own members of his own unit turn, turned him in. Um, he was accused of committing war crimes. There are lots of different accusations. The one that went to trial is him taking a picture with uh, a dead combatant, a dead enemy combatant. Um, that was the one that sort of made it through uh, the process. There were other various allegations and, and charges, um, but because of the procedural, there were all kinds of procedural problems with the case as it as it proceeded. At the end of the day, that was the charge that uh, was able to, in, in a sense, be sustained. Right? I'll, even though there are other allegations, those did not make it through the process. Now, of course, taking a picture with War dead is uh, at, the, at the very least the violation of our customs and practices in war is about respecting uh, the dead, um, and also violates, um, you know, certain certain of course certain legal uh, practices and requirements that we have about how we treat uh, how American uh, military members are to treat um, combatants. Right, people who are fighting on the other side. Um, so that's the that's the, the sort of the basic. If we can boil it down to the to the basics of the case, that was that's the basic issue. The other two cases that were talked about in conjunction, these are all cases that involve war crimes in some way, and an attempt by the military to say to their own people, 
no, you can't engage in that behavior. And if we find you guilty of engaging in that behavior, then there will be, then there will be accountability that has to, that has to happen. And this is a, you know, it's a longstanding uh, thing that the military thinks important that American people think is important, especially since Nuremberg, but also since Vietnam and uh, the, the My Lai case. So, um, but the Gallagher case was very complicated and there were all kinds of procedural problems with how the Navy handled it. So that's part of the story as well, right? It's unclear what, if it hadn't been for those procedural problems, it's, it's sort of unclear what would have happened when Gallagher would have been found guilty on other charges as well. Right. He's, so he's acquitted on on most of the more, I would say, severe charges and found yeah. guilty of taking this trophy photo. Yeah. Um, and the punishment is going to be they're going to take his he's he's getting busted down to he's getting busted down in rank, I believe. And they're taking away his uh, trident pen, like the symbol of him being a Navy SEAL. Correct. Yes. Um, which that that is actually that's a pretty like, you know, if you're a civilian, you might say, oh, taking this pen. That's no big. You know, what's the big deal about that? That is the symbol of his identity as a member of that military community, right? So this is sort of the, you know, equivalent of, uh, you know, in all the old movies, ripping off someone's apulets or ripping their uniform or taking their medals off their uniform, right? He is, that is a mark of you are now excluded. You are, you are no longer a part of this, of this community, right? So it's more the, the, the being reduced in rank affects things like his retirement and, and how much money he would get paid in, in retirement. So that's a monetary question. The, the trident question is really uh, a question of, of symbolism as a question of the military exerting their autonomy over their own profession and saying, if you if you are going to be seen as a member of our profession, you have to adhere to certain standards in the same way that like for the ranger tab, if you have a ranger tab, that means something in that particular community. Okay, so this does bring up all kinds of questions. Uh, you know, the cliche that we think of when we think of civilian intervention in the military is usually the opposite of, of, of what we've been seeing. It's usually we... We think of this the I think civilians, at least I do sometimes, think of the military as this kind of insular world. Um, and when they when when they do bring their own to justice, uh, they have a tendency to to hedge on the side of protecting people. Right. right? Um, and so it, we the civilians need to come in to make sure that the cases are fair and that you know people are actually tried for the crimes that they have committed, et cetera. Uh, we've got this inversion of that now. Um, is that yeah. Is that testing? Like, how, how is the military reacting to this? Like, what are what are you seeing? What kind of conversations are you having? What do you think? Um, well, in terms of, of of what I think, I argued in an op ed this week with one of my ethics colleagues that you know that this is deeply problematic because it undermines the nature of the military profession and the ability of the military profession to sort of police their own and have a true sense of responsibility and accountability, particularly for actions in combat. A lot of the conversations I've been having with both civilians and military this week have um, uh, have, have expressed a great deal of concern about how this 
what the future, what this will mean for future accountability in the military. It's very, as you pointed out, it is actually quite difficult uh, to get to the point where you are trying your own people uh, for war crimes. That's quite an extraordinary thing that we do. Um, and I think it is in part, uh, part of the reason that the military has a high trust level uh, from the American public, because I think the American public understands that they will, in fact, uh, police their own and they take the rules and the laws of, of warfare uh, seriously. And I think a lot of people are concerned about this is setting a precedent that uh, if you appeal to the civilian authorities and if you can go on cable news to make your case, then the president or whoever the civilian authority is will let you off the hook, will override military justice uh, and say, no, it's okay. Um, and I think a further problem is the, the the perception that's being projected of the military as a bunch of tough guys who are killers and who commit war crimes and who will do whatever it takes, you know, to to do their jobs. Uh, and it's a certain kind of cult of masculinity that is uh, deeply problematic, and it actually is at odds with the military profession. People who are members of the military are not killers. They're not murderers. There's a distinction. Um, they engage in justified killing on behalf of the state under certain rules and certain parameters. They take an oath and they swear to defend the United States. But that part of that oath is also to follow the rules and laws and orders of of the military community. So I think some of it is also a, a conception of of warfare that is probably rooted in, in watching too many action movies or too much sort of pop culture conceptions of, of how we think of the military as opposed to the military as a professional force that, like other professions, operates within certain limitations. Those who execute people, however you feel about capital punishment and the death penalty, those who execute people for the state have to follow certain parameters in doing so. They don't just get to do it however they want. Um, Members of the medical profession have to follow certain rules in in how they render care. This is part of what it means to be a member of a profession. All right, we're going to pause here for a quick word from our sponsors. We'll be right back on War College. All right, thank you for staying tuned, War College listeners. We are on with Pauline Corinne, and we are talking about ethics and war criminals. Do you think there's anything to the fact that two of the two of the high profile pardoning cases are members of the special forces? Um, do you think that they get to even if do you think that they get treated differently and they get to play by different rules? I know this is something that we've kind of talked about before with you. Right. Yeah, that's a good question. I think there, I think there is a sense, and I've spent a lot of time in the last couple of weeks chatting with people in special forces. Um, I mean, I think there is perhaps a sense that they are, I mean, quite rightly viewed as more elite and, and, presumably uh, then maybe entitled to certain kinds of special 
uh, treatment, uh, although many, many of the members that I've talked to this week push back about the idea, push back against the idea that means that they shouldn't be held to the standard. And in fact, they argue they should be held to a higher standard because they're an elite force. Um, but I do think that perhaps there is this sense, and particularly in the public eye, that um, that they are special, they are different. And there's also been conversation about the extent to which the special forces have been used or perhaps overused uh, in the last 18 years, and that that some of what is happening in these pardoning cases is a perhaps a sympathy vote, right? Listen, what, look at what these guys have been through, because it is, it is men that we're talking about at this point. Look at what they've been through. You can't expect people to go through all of these deployments and, and not commit war crimes, right? It's somehow an unreasonable expectation um, that we're asking them to do too much. So I think there's a couple of different strains of discussion. But the fact that they are elite units, I think, clearly, uh, you know, sort of plays into at least the popular imagination, although, as, as I said, I think there are members of, of their own community who are quite upset and angry and, and say that these pardons tarnish their community because they say that the standard isn't the standard. Um, and they, you know, the people I've talked to say actually are upset because that undermines what they're trying to do, which is to hold their own. Right now, uh, various special forces communities, and that's been in the news, are, are undergoing some soul searching and some discussions about uh, their culture and ethics within their culture. So there's these conversations ongoing within these special forces communities across uh, across the military uh, about the effects of the 18-year, you know, constant um, operational tempo and what's that doing to their culture and their ethics. They're they're trying to sort of right the ship, if I can use a Navy analogy, and this is actually saying, oh, you don't need to right the ship. It's all fine. Your your, your special forces, like, will just let you off the hook. So I think there's, I mean, there's several, there's some problems with that, with that kind of view. And even if it's well-meaning sympathy, um, because war is difficult. Um, but these are all people who volunteered. Right. They raised their hand and said, yes, I'll do this. It was, I think, Rear Admiral Colin Green back in August said that the Navy SEALs specifically, which Gallagher uh, yeah. is one, is has a culture problem. Um, do you think that stuff like this is going to have a chilling effect on people trying to hold their their – I mean, the, the members of their profession accountable. As like you said, Gallagher was turned in by multiple members of his platoon, right? Yes. Yes. And and purportedly he, he threatened to kill them if they turned him in. Right. So it was under like, there was some courage involved for them to turn him in. Right. Yeah. I think that's a good question. I don't know the answer to that question. I worry that the answer is yes. I worry that, um, because loyalty is so important in the military, it's difficult enough as it is to get people to uh, to turn in their comrades for war crimes, right? To be willing to step up and to say, no, what you did was not okay. That's a difficult thing to do because of unit cohesion in the military. These are people you depend on for your life, and these are people you are bonded with, Um so my worry is that it will, in fact, have it have a chilling effect 
that said, I, I think the people that I've spoken to in, in special forces, and I think especially someone like Admiral Breen, is seems very committed to the idea that they are members of a profession and that they will uphold uh, certain standards. The question is, is if there are more pardons that come or if there are more actions that uh, that from civilian authorities that communicate, oh, well, we're not really going to hold you to the standard or we don't even really agree with that standard anymore, then I think that that, that is, is going to be deeply problematic for the military because it sets up another kind of mil- military-civilian conflict, right? You have a conflict of values, and, and you and I have talked about the sort of the difference in the two cultures as it is, right? Um, so I do worry that that's a possibility. When I talk to people in the military and I talk to my students, they're like, no, we're professionals. We don't, that's not what we do. Um, and lots of the people that I've talked to do not have nice things to say about about Gallagher and the two other gentlemen, because the view is, is that they broke the, they broke the bond, right? We follow the rules. This is what we do. Um, we have a moral, moral and legal standard that we uphold. Um, and that's and that's part of who we are, and we understand it's difficult, but this is you know we raised our hands and took an oath and agreed to do this so so i'm I'm concerned it will have a chilling effect i I, I worry it will make people less likely to take the risk to turn in someone who's committed a war crime because well, they think to themselves, well, the person is probably just going to get off the hook anyway. So why why would I take that risk, put my career on the line to to do that? Not just get off the hook, but arguably rewarded too, right? Yeah. Gallagher and Lawrence specifically have both been on Fox News. Yeah. Uh, They've been – They've they've been doing the tour. They've been in the media. They've been talking to the press. Now there's early rumblings that they'll be part of the 2020 campaign. Right. How does that look? I think it looks terrible Um, from from a military profession point of view, right? Because part of the military profession is is that the military is people often say the military is apolitical. I don't, you know. I don't think that's the right way to phrase it. The military is supposed to be nonpartisan, right? So they are not supposed to, you know, endorse a particular party or be seen. The military is not to be seen as a tool um, or as being loyal to one party over another. The military is seen to be loyal to the Constitution and to the United States and to protect the citizens of the United States, all of them. So the concern here is, as you said, um, are, are, are Gallagher and, and Lawrence are, and whoever else, are they going to benefit actually from having committed war crimes or seem to have benefit? But then also that does that, that sets up this message that this view of warfare that Gallagher and, and Lawrence and the pardons sort of represent now is the view of warfare that uh, at least one particular political figure is asking people to endorse. It's asking them to endorse this idea that our boys are killers. Yeah, they'll commit war crimes if I tell them to because we're tough and we're badass and that's what we do. 
Um, and, and if that, if that is the mess, so the reward question is one issue and that's problematic because you shouldn't benefit from your crime, right? It's a basic legal principle. Um, but then also this question about what's the narrative of, of the American military that's being put forward and the narrative of war, because that's not the narrative that as a country we have uh, historically followed. Now, it's not to say there haven't been people who have who've committed war crimes. Of course, there have. But there has been at least an attempt to say, listen, we reject that. I mean, we tried the Nazis for that. We tried Japanese at the end of World War II for committing war crimes. We said this is not okay with the other allied powers, Nuremberg and, 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 and Tokyo trials, right? So there's this legal precedent that says that's now established in international law and the law of armed conflict that this other rules to war. There are limitations on how, how armies and militaries can function. So my, the question sort of going forward is what's the effect of, of, of these actions on that narrative. And the idea that, and the broader narrative of that we hold people responsible and accountable when they break the rules, um, in this case in the military, uh, is that still or is that still a thing? Or are we just saying if you can, you know, appeal to the right person or have powerful friends or garner sympathy in a certain kind of way, no, you don't have to follow the rules. Seems like a deeply sort of problematic view for a democratic republic to hold. The rule of law is a basic tenet of our political system. Well, and it also plays into, uh, you know, the, an argument from the cynical that has always kind of been espoused that, you know, the, the military gets to make its own rules, et cetera, et cetera. You know, this kind of, right. this idea that there really is no war of law. And if, as long as you've got the right friends or the right amount of money, Right. Um, you get to do whatever you want, which, you know, the truth is actually way more complicated. But when you've got when you've got things happening like what's happening now, it, it that feels more true than it's ever been before, unfortunately. Yeah, I think that's right. I think if in that way, it feels like, the, you know, you have to seed the cynics point because at least you have a few data points that seem to suggest that, that that's the case. So I think that will be the, I think that's a question less for the military. I think within the military, there is still a strong commitment rooted in identity that this is not how we behave, right? And this is not okay. Um, You've heard that from many retired, especially senior officers this week, uh, veterans, people who are active duty, of course, can't speak out perhaps in the way uh, that some people might want to hear from them, but in my conversations, like the people I talk to who are in the military are very committed to their professional identities and that this is not, this is not how we behave. Um, so I think the concern is really more what will, what will civilians, especially civilians who have political power conclude about this episode and, and, what will they be willing to do in a case? So let's say we have a case where the military doesn't want to hold their own accountable. Will civilians sort of say, okay, well, you know, it's not really a thing anymore anyway because of these pardons and other things that have happened. We're not really that into accountability. So we'll just sort of, we'll just let it slide. I think if that starts to happen, that's very, that's very dangerous because what we're then saying is that the rule of law doesn't apply. 
right? Or it doesn't apply in a, in a meaningful way. So sometimes you might be held accountable, especially if you're a person of color or a member of marginalized community. But if you uh, look a certain way or belong to a certain community or have certain kinds of friends with enough money, you can go on cable TV and, and get some sympathy, then you won't be held accountable. And that's a very sort of divisive, I think that's a very divisive message. Right. And it deepens the civilian-military divide, which is already pretty bad in this country. Yes. Yes, I think it does. Uh, because it reinforces what is actually a misunderstanding, which is that, yes, the military police their own, but those aren't, they're not arbitrary standards. Right? There are reasons for those standards, and they're taken very seriously. They're related to things like just war thinking and international humanitarian law and the law of armed conflict, which have a long historical trajectory. These aren't like arbitrary rules. Uh, there, there's reasons for these. Um, and, and since there are fewer and fewer civilians that have experience with the military, I, I fear that, that as that gap gets broader, then, then what civilians fill in, uh, their knowledge of the military is then based on what they see in the media and what they see in popular culture. So if your view of the military is based on, let's say, Rambo, for, our, for argument's sake, or pick your favorite action movie, right, that's problematic because that doesn't necessarily represent the military profession. I think, uh, I think A Few Good Men is, is a really good example here. Yeah, um, yeah. and it's and, <laughs> and especially because uh, every week I feel like I see Jack Nicholson giving that speech at the end of the at the end of the movie uh, with somebody saying how amazing it is and like you know this is you know this yeah. is what the military does taking it out of context not showing the next scene where he immediately gets arrested right yeah. completely misunderstanding what's going on. Well, and at the end, at the very end of the movie, the two Marines, like the one younger Marine turns to the older Marine, says, basically says, I'm paraphrasing here, but basically says, what did, what did we do wrong? Like, he literally doesn't, he's having a hard time understanding what happened. And the older Marine says, we're supposed to, we're supposed to take care of the innocent. We're supposed to take care of the vulnerable. We're supposed to take care of the weak. That's what Marines do. Right. So at the end, after all the Nicholson stuff, then you have this reassertion, this articulation of what happened is that the Marines failed to live up to their own professional identity. Right. And that even Nicholson fails to live up to that. So, yeah, I agree with you. That scene is often pulled out as a sort of like, you know, you need us on that wall. You know, you civilians don't understand this. But I think you also have to take that scene with the scene towards the end where the, the Marine says to his younger colleague, no, we, we did the wrong thing, right? We didn't do what we were supposed to do. Um, so one hopes that that assertion that's at the end of the movie, that that is, that that's the final story for the military, that they say, no, this is who we are. This is who we're supposed to we're supposed to protect the innocent. We're supposed to protect the vulnerable. Um, it's not about being tough guys. It's not about taking advantage of the fact that we're given lethal power by our society. It's not about a particular vision of, of masculinity, right, that, that takes advantage of and harms other people because we can 
that's not that's not what the military is for. The military is to protect the society. It's for the common good. So my hope is that is that people can move to the end of the movie and say, yes, that's right. Did Spencer maybe do the wrong thing here? Because it sure sounds like uh, if you believe Esper, it sounds like he was talking out of both. He was saying one thing in public and doing another thing in private, right? Yeah. If we believe if we believe Esper, and even if I mean there were reports that Spencer had talked to Esper's chief of staff, so there's this assumption that somehow he was in the loop. But at the very least, if 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 the reports are correct, then. Spencer is saying one thing in public and then, um, you know, acting in a, in a different sort of confusing way. And that's also hard to square with his, his resignation letter, which, which many people in the military, like, were like, yes, this is, you know, they view that as an honorable thing. So, yeah, I think that's kind of a, I think it's kind of a hot mess because it's, you have these conflicting reports and it's unclear you know, who do you believe? But then there, I think, you know, at the very least, there's, there is a concern that, that once again, what's happening is back channel deals, right? Which is not how the, that's not how the military operates. So, you know, another thing that I, that you and I have talked about a little bit is, um, people fall in line with, I'm trying to think of how to put this, your commander affects things. Like everything the commander yeah. does and the way the yeah. commander operates resonates down, right? It does. It and, sets the culture. Right? Yeah, you set the yeah culture exactly. From the top. And Trump is the commander in chief. Yep. So that's in the way that he operates is is you know mm-hmm. you know you know everyone knows how he operates. So that yeah. re- that resonates down. That changes the culture. That affects the culture, even the military culture. It does. Yeah. No, I think, and I think that's also part of the concern. I mean, there is concern about the erosion of um, a certain way of doing things, a civil relationship, but also just erosion of moral standards and, um, you know, civility and, um, you know, the, the way that, that he operates is, is very different than his predecessors in, in ways that people are concerned uh, are eroding some basic norms that we need to have a democratic republic, right? We can't have political debate by insulting one another all the time. People have to be able to compromise. People have to be able to come to some kind of common solutions to pass laws, to do things that need to happen. So that what's the impact on the, on the culture, I think is a, is a, it's a serious problem. Um, and it's also part of the civ mill issue. If, if in my teaching officers, or teaching senior enlisted, I say to them, there are certain moral standards that I expect you to uphold as a civilian because you work for me, right? Civilians are the, you know, we're the boss. And there are certain moral standards that I expect you to uphold. But then they point to the commander in chief and say, yeah, but he doesn't uphold them, right? That's, you know, unless we have children know how difficult this is. Right. If you have one parent who's who doesn't, you know, who's seen as not following the rules and the kids are like, hey, dad doesn't have to do that or mom doesn't have to do that. Why do I have to do that? So I think it, it sets up a kind of a serious sort of culture problem about what are our norms and, and, and what are we going to hold people to? Um, and if the military is held to a certain standard, but then 
in their interactions with senior political officials, if that's not the the culture, that's not the norm, then then what what happens in that interaction? Pauline, thank you so much for coming on to War College and walking us through this this contentious and complicated topic. Thank you. All right. Thank you so much for tuning in, War College listeners. War College is me, Matthew Galt, and Kevin, Kevin Nodell. You can follow us on Twitter at war underscore college. I'm at M-J-G-A-U-L-T. Kevin is at K-J-K Nodell. We'll be back next week with more stories from behind the front lines. Stay safe until then. Please enjoy some turkey.